Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Well, Margaret, another rare show of bipartisan agreement on Capitol Hill. Both the House and Senate overwhelmingly approved the 21st Century Cures Act, which has earmarked billions of dollars for biomedical research, providing money for mental health and addiction services, Alzheimer's, and cancer research, and accelerates the drug approval process through the FDA. It's being touted as a landmark piece of legislation, securing much-needed funds for the National Institutes of Health, the Cancer Moonshot, the Brain Initiative. But very importantly, it, it also secures the billion dollars the president had requested to help fight the opioid crisis, which is claiming 50,000 lives in a year in this country and requires an urgent and immediate response. And this bill does go some distance to help with that. But the bill is not without some controversy, Margaret, which critics like Senator Elizabeth Warren claim is too lenient on the pharmaceutical industry. And while the Cures bill secures almost $5 billion for research, the funds must still be approved and appropriated by members of Congress. And as we've seen in recent years, that's often an uphill battle. And of particular note in this bill, Mark, is the support that it provides for mental health services. Now, mental health advocates, such as our own Connecticut Senator Chris Murphy, called this bill the most important piece of legislation since the passage of the Mental Health Parity Act in 2008, which really has fallen short of those intentions. So this bill does do a lot to improve access to mental health services and, and training for the people who provide them. And hopefully that's going to help fill a huge gap in care. President Obama saying this bill will generate momentum in research, investing nearly $3 billion to build upon the major initiatives already launched in his administration. And speaking of those research initiatives, that's something our guest today is quite passionate about. Dr. Victor Zhao is the president of the National Academy of Medicine at the National Academy of Sciences, formerly known as the Institute of Medicine. He brings unique insight to the role as a research giant in his own right, and we look forward to that conversation. And also, Laurie Robertson stops by the managing editor of factcheck.org, looks at misstatements made about health policy in the public domain, and no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by going to chcradio.com. And as always, if you have comments, please email us at chcradio.com at chc1.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter because we love to hear from you. Now we'll get to our interview with Dr. Victor Zhao in just a moment. But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's headline news. I'm Marianne O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. Drug prices through the roof. Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services has been analyzing the trend of rising drug prices, trying to get a handle on what's behind these spikes and who the biggest offenders are. According to the report, the drug with the biggest rise in cost per unit, Medicare Part D from 2014 to 2015, was Losartan Potassium, a generic version of the hypertension drug Kozar, rising just under 500 percent from 2014 to 2015. The cost of a generic version of the anticonvulsant drug Epitol jumped 450 percent. In third place, Lisonopril, a generic of the ACE inhibitor Zestrel, that rose over 400 percent. Cancer drugs also saw a dramatic rise from 2011 to 2015. Speaking of cancer, folks on Medicaid often get subpar treatment when diagnosed with it. 
That, according to a survey of cancer patients by the not-for-profit cancer support community, found Medicaid beneficiaries with cancer more often felt their doctors rushed through their appointments, more likely experienced delays in getting appointments, were least likely to receive social and emotional support services, and more likely to say they only sometimes got the coverage they needed. One key reason for the disparity is that Medicaid benefits vary from state to state, and experts say inequality is likely to grow under strategies proposed by the Trump administration. Meanwhile, a group of health care leaders have gotten together to urge the Trump administration to continue to support the health care industry's move towards value-based care. The Healthcare Transformation Task Force is a consortium of heavy hitters from across the healthcare spectrum. They sent their urgent message to Trump, his vice president Mike Pence, and congressional leaders from both parties, urging them to refrain from undermining gains made from streamlining healthcare with a focus towards value and outcomes versus volume. South and Central America still reeling from the effects of the Zika outbreak over the past. Brazil has also been ground zero for a significant outbreak of microcephaly. Now Colombia reports the number of cases in that country has quadrupled in the past year due to Zika. On the other hand, the U.S. CDC and Florida Department of Health say Miami Beach is no longer considered an active zone. The CDC said there have been no new cases of local Zika virus in South Miami Beach for more than 45 days, suggesting risk of infection was no longer of great concern. I'm Mariano O'Hare with these health care headlines. We're speaking today with Dr. Victor Zhao, president of the National Academy of Medicine, formerly the Institute of Medicine, a private nonprofit institution providing objective analysis and policy advice to solve the nation's complex problems related to science, technology, and medicine. Dr. Zhao most recently served as Chancellor for Health Affairs at Duke University and President and CEO of Duke University Medical Center, where he launched the Duke Translational Medicine Institute and the Duke Global Health Institute. Prior to that, he was Chairman of Harvard's Medical School, Brigham and Women's Hospital, and also served as Chairman of the Department of Medicine at Stanford University. Dr. Zhao is a renowned researcher whose work led to the development of ACE inhibitors now used widely for treatment of high blood pressure. Dr. Zhao earned his medical degree from McGill University Medical School in Montreal. Dr. Zhao, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. It's a great pleasure to be talking to you. Your appointment at the National Academy of Medicine came at a very interesting inflection point in healthcare. Your background in translational science speaks to the emerging reality of modern healthcare which increasingly is becoming an interdisciplinary partnership. And and I'm wondering if you could tell our listeners how that background is shaping the direction that you're leading the academy through during this time of transformation in healthcare. Well, Mark, I would say there's never a more exciting but challenging time in science, medicine, and healthcare. If you look at advances in science and technology, they're breathtaking genome sequencing for a thousand dollars, precision medicine, stem cell, regenerative medicine, gene editing, and yet the world is facing unprecedented challenges in, say, increased disease burden, such as obesity, diabetes, emerging infections like Zika and Ebola, antimicrobial resistance, and of course our healthcare system is fragmented and really too expensive. I certainly also, I'm very worried that healthcare is becoming highly political. Mm-hmm. So the National Academy of Medicine has been around for about 50 years, and we found our roots in the National Academy of Science, which was chartered 
by Abraham Lincoln and Congress to be independent advisors to a nation.、Mm-hmm. We must continue to be that evidence-based, trusted advisor and independent from politics or any kind of non-science beliefs. And so we have asked ourselves to be more innovative, more action-oriented, and you know we have recently redone our mission statement to say our job is to improve health for all、mm-hmm. and to accelerate progress in science, medicine, and policy, but address health equity issues. That's what I hope to bring to National Academy of Medicine. Well, Doctor Zhao, I look back at at the work that you've done. You served at the helm of a number of the nation's premier medical institutions. Most recently, were at Duke. Before that, at Harvard and Stanford, and you oversaw a, a, just a tremendous amount of transformation at Duke, launching both the Global Health and the Translational Science Institute, with a real push to help accelerate. The pace of scientific discovery, and the National Academy of Science certainly has a very venerable history, and and I think one would say has moved rather slowly to advance new ideas. But what did you learn accelerating change at the academic level that's going to inform the work being undertaken at the National Academy of Medicine, which relies on broad partnerships and volunteers? I understand to a considerable degree. I would say that my thinking and my learning. Started very early in life because, as you know, I was born in China,、mm-hmm. and、uh, my family and I left, you know, the border to Hong Kong, and then I was fortunate enough to come over here to study, and this country has treated me really well. So, what I've learned in my journey, including my journey through Harvard,、uh, Stanford, and Duke, is of course it's really important to take a step back and ask ourselves, what exactly. Are we trying to accomplish? What are we all about? And it is about doing good for society. So certainly, learning from my previous experience, one must first articulate your vision and create a very clear strategy going forward, which is in fact what we're doing right now, as we have recently reconfigured ourselves to become the National Academy of Medicine. It's about people. It's about collaboration across disciplines. You know, the recent、uh, reorganization of the National Academies. We are the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine. Three academies under the same roof. It's about collaborating across disciplines and creating a culture that really fosters innovation and evidence base, so that people can trust us that what we say are based on facts and the very best minds. Well, you. Commented about the reorganization that's actually going on at the federal level, and、uh, you mentioned earlier a concern about the sort of partisanship that's been happening. I think we're all buoyed by the passage of the 21st Century Cures Act.、Uh, uh, as you contemplate the new administration, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about their commitment to the advancement of biomedical research. Yeah, I think you're quite right, Mark. I'm、uh, cautious but optimistic.、Mm-hmm. So I do believe that health and health policy is complex. This is why we need to continue to stay the course. For over 50 years, we've done so, and we transcend administration, and we continue to do so. You know, so nine months ago, we anticipated, of course, a change in U.S. administration,、mm-hmm. and so we started this initiative called Vital Directions for Health and Healthcare.、Uh, Dr. Mark McClellan co-chaired this with me. As you know, he was the previous.、Uh, Uh, FDA commissioner and CMS, CMS、uh, yeah. director. He's a Republican, and two of us put together a steering committee of really notable individuals who understand health, but also understand policy and government. 
We have people like uh, Mike Levitt mm-hmm. and Tom Dasho. Really, in mm-hmm. many ways, I would say nonpartisan, not even bipartisan. Yeah, right. And we said, look, it's not about Obamacare. It's about what the country needs going forward. And so we worked on policies and actions that can yield timely and measurable progress. And we have three key goals, better health and well-being, high-value health care, and strong science and technology. We brought together 150 experts, you know, many of our, also our members, to guide us. And we had a big summit with 500 or more people. And right now we are synthesizing all these pieces together so that we can give to the administration seven very clear priorities that they need to consider going forward. So we're working very hard on reaching out to the new administration, the executive branch, and also Congress and others. And so I do think there's a real opportunity to work together with the new administration to look at what's ahead of us and what we must do together to improve health of the nation. I know, Dr. Zhao, that you also have a very significant focus on global health. And you warned that global pandemics could cost the global economy some six trillion dollars, not just a threat to global health, but really to our global security as well. What does the National Academy of Medicine recommend as the more sound approach to meeting these global pandemics? Well, as I said, Margaret, earlier that we were founded by Congress to advise the nation, and the world is hyper-connected. You know, what happens in a far corner of the world can rapidly affect us, you know, be it pandemics, war, security, refugees, climate change, and we have to lead. And, you know, certainly we are all together trying to improve the planet. This report was, to me, extremely illuminating because for a long time when people say, look, you have an outbreak of infection, you know, most people look at, well, health is like a black hole. We keep putting more money in and it costs more and, uh, you know, we just need to provide the service. But everything is hyper-connected. Health influences economy, it influences national and global security. That's what our report said. I think that the decision makers understand that if we stand on sideline and we don't invest enough in health, we may end up with negative impact on the economy and security. Take, for example, Ebola. During the outbreak, borders were closed, people stopped traveling, Mm -hmm. the economy came to standstill, lives were lost, And the impact was huge. In our report, when we assessed the loss per year by pandemics in the world, is $60 billion, as you said. Mm. So the trillion numbers to say, if you imagine this for a century, and when SARS hit Hong Kong, the airport was literally shut down and uh, they lost a lot of money. But I think security is the other issue. Think about the security issue in terms of borders and people moving one to the other. And think about the world now, which these pathogens can be used as weapons. Our report basically highlighted the importance of health, not in an isolated fashion, but in a connected fashion to everything else. You know, we put that much money into homeland security, into military, and to cybersecurity. We gotta put money into health security. We're speaking today with Dr. Victor Zhao, president of the National Academy of Medicine, a private nonprofit institution providing objective analysis and policy advice to solve the nation's 
complex problems related to science, technology, and medicine. Dr. Zhao, as I hear you speak about the work and the mission of the National Academy of Medicine, I think it's fair to say that you stand on the shoulders of so many tireless, dedicated volunteers. And one of the really uh, memorable reports was your 1999 report to Air is Human, which shined a spotlight on one of uh, medicine's most concerning shortcomings, the high rate of deaths related to medical errors. And it's now been 17 years since that initial report, and the numbers still remain unacceptably high. And I'm wondering if you could talk to our listeners about the work that's been done since that initial report and chart some of the strategies that you have going forward. First of all, you mentioned word volunteer. I do want to talk about that. We have some 2,000 Academy members who are being elected every year highly distinguished, one of the most uh, leading scholars and experts in health and science and medicine. I think we have something like 50 Nobel laureates. What we do is that we convene experts from all different corners so that we have the best minds in engineering and economy, etc. And people always come because of who we are. So this report to As Human is an example of the contribution that we can make to health of our people in the nation and globally. 17 years ago, I remember this report that says, you know, up to 90,000 U.S. citizens can die mm-hmm. from preventable deaths in the hospital. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's from errors. And of course, that was shocking. And that was a wake-up call. In the last 17 years, the world has gone on a journey mm-hmm. of understanding how important it is to say quality is important, safety is important. No matter what you do, people are going to make mistakes. However, if we have a system and a culture of patient first, quality of care, safety of care, and that system should greatly reduce the error that people can make inadvertently. So myself being part of this journey because, as you know, I was a Duke, and we had some celebrated or infamous cases of Mm -hmm. patient safety problems. We learned a huge amount about what? We have to have a culture where people say, patient come first, and if I see something that's not right, Mm -hmm. I can speak up, and there'll be no retribution. We have to have a culture that understands human behavior. So if I look back on 17 years, I'll say that the impact is enormous, you know, from almost like a dark ages to where we are today, using now, of course, technological tools to report, to track. Now, you said earlier the numbers are still high. The, you know, the population is expanding, the demand of care is increasing, and we're able to collect much better numbers than we collected 17 years ago. But what we do know today is still a long way to go. But I'm sure you follow that arc. 2016 reported the data showing that some of the changes they put in place, Mm -hmm. particularly in terms of measuring hospital performance, have greatly reduced errors and saved lives and saved money. So this is never going to end, but we're going to be vigilant and keep doing better. Well, Dr. Zhao, another area where we admire and follow the National Academy of Medicine is in its commitment 
to fostering workforce development and advancement to meet 21st century challenges in healthcare. So as you know, the Academy released a lauded groundbreaking report, The Future of Nursing, several years ago in order to allow the nation's three million nurses to make their greatest contribution to healthcare. And they followed up with a report just about a year ago, I think, looking at progress on those recommendations. Can you address that initiative and how the National Academy of Medicine is working to advance that cause? When I was at Duke, I was responsible for the nursing school as well and the medical school and the hospitals. And I see the centrality of nursing in front line but also in education and research. The 2010 report was chaired by Donna Shalala. She's always said that this is one of the work that she is particularly feeling that she's made a great contribution. And in fact, if you look at our report, it's the most downloaded report ever. Mm -hmm, That's right. And uh, IOM or NAM. I think what this report really said was we have to have nurses practice the full extent of their education training and not the old days where, you know, they are just to serve the doctors, particularly when you think about what they can do and how compassionate and capable they are and the expertise they have and the fact that we have shortage of physicians, nurses should lead, should practice the full extent of education. The report says they should have high levels of education because the evidence show the more educated the nurses are, the better the patient outcome. Mm-hmm. You know, their goal is to say how many must obtain a baccalaureate degree, how many should get higher education, doctor of nurse practice and PhDs, etc. And the report says they should be full partners with physicians and other healthcare providers, and they should become involved with effective workforce planning. Shortly after release report, RWJ launched this Future of Nursing Campaign for Action, mm-hmm. which they say, how do we implement all those recommendations? So we have certainly seen changes in states that remove major barriers to practice for advanced and given full practice authority to nurse practitioners. Uh, suffice to say, we are truly seeing that change. CMS actually launched this idea of graduate nurse education in order to further advance the training of nurses after they finish their baccalaureate degree. So, uh, but let me say that it's not just nursing, it's interprofessional education. There's a recognition that we work around the patient and the team supporting the patient. Not only doctors but, and nurses, but also social workers, mm-hmm. pharmacists. Certainly when I was at Duke, we pushed for what we call interprofessional education, getting people from different professions to work together early during their training to learn to work as a team all working for the same purpose, which is improve care for the patient. Dr. Zhao, I, I was listening to one of your earlier comments and you were saying that we wanna contribute to the health of our people and globally. And I was thinking about the work that's happening over at the NIH with their Precision Medicine Initiative, this million lives study that uh, Dr. Collins, the president, has been behind, certainly uh, the 21st Century Cures Bill is adding some money to it. Thoughts about uh, genomics, uh, that sort of intersection of medicine, science, and personalized health. Many of the ways they've tried to put this together is a sort of an interdisciplinary approach, trying to bring everybody to the table. Some thoughts about that? More than that, they bring patients to the table. that's right. Yes. It's a big voluntary program where we want people to volunteer, being willing to share their DNA information, being willing to see that this is collectively where we can learn from engaging 
the patient population. So a big part of this is, in fact, engaging patients. You know, I think this Precision Medicine Initiative is one of the signature initiatives of President Obama. Uh, I certainly feel that he's been a great supporter of science and health. Look at some of the initiatives he's taken on in brain, you know, in precision medicine, in many other areas. As you all know, the promise of precision medicine is that we'll be able to develop the tools that can precisely identify the appropriate uh, vulnerable individuals and very early intervene, if not find specific treatment. We recognize this sequencing human genome is only one part of information. Mm-hmm. You've got to get a lot of other information to link them together. That includes all the omics technology, biomarkers, but also the data that you can collect from electronic health record, from the wearables, mm-hmm. biosensors, from big data. And because of these huge amount of scientific and clinical information, there's a long way to go to be able to collect them to coordinate them, being able to analyze them, and to make useful information out of them. But importantly, we have to address, of course, patient privacy. We have to understand security of the data. So this initiative is really moving the whole nation forward for the future, and I'm very excited about this. We've been speaking today with Dr. Victor Zhao, President of the National Academy of Medicine and the National Academy of Sciences. You can learn more about their work by going to nam.edu. Dr. Zhao, thank you so much for joining us on Conversations on Healthcare today. What a great pleasure. Thank you very much. Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of FactCheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? The chairman of the Senate Environment Committee falsely claims that a new report confirms that hydraulic fracturing has not impacted drinking water in Wyoming. The report said a lack of water quality data predating oil and gas exploration prevented it from reaching, quote, firm conclusions. Senator James Inhofe, who chairs the Senate Environment and Public Works Committee, made his remarks in a statement issued November 10, the day that the Wyoming Department of Environmental Quality issued a report on water supply wells in Pavilion, a small town southeast of Yellowstone National Park. The industry-funded state report specifically looked at the likelihood of the impact of oil and gas operations on 14 water supply wells used by residents living near Pavilion. Since the 1990s, residents have complained of illnesses and said the drinking water was black and had a chemical taste. Inhofe said the state's investigation, quote, confirms what we've known all along. Hydraulic fracturing has not impacted drinking water resources. But that's not what the report said. Instead, the report said that it's, quote, unlikely that hydraulic fracturing had any impacts on water supply wells, but, quote, limited baseline water quality data predating development of the pavilion gas field hinders reaching firm conclusions on causes and effects of reported water quality changes. The process of retrieving gas and oil, often from shale through fracking, entails injecting water, sand, and chemicals at high pressure, releasing oil and gas that would otherwise be difficult to recover. If water quality data had been collected before the drilling started, 
scientists could have compared that data with trends in the use of specific practices over the years. Both conventional and unconventional fuel recovery methods have the potential to negatively impact groundwater resources. And given the lack of baseline data, it's often difficult to confirm that fracking in particular has played a role in water contamination. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. Diabetes is a chronic illness for which behavioral choices such as diet and exercise are extremely important. But incentivizing behavior change in large patient populations is very challenging. A recent study done by Emory University and a nonprofit organization focused on improving the health of India's population of a billion people found that text messages sent through smartphones might be a powerful tool in promoting diabetes prevention behaviors. They partnered with India's leading provider of mobile phones, Nokia, to harness a research cohort of a million clients to receive diabetes prevention text messages. So the text messages themselves were developed with Emory University's Rollins School of Public Health because we wanted them based on science and behavior change theory, and then we adapted them with lots of consumer feedback. Nalini Saligram, CEO of the Arogya Foundation, the text messaging study was designed to generate improved activity around four simple goals consume more fruits and vegetables, avoid fried foods, and exercise regularly. You know, the messages themselves were quite simple, but the sequence of the messages and how frequently they were texted was all based on behavior change theory as well as on Nokia's experience from their consumer base. Participants who received just two text messages per week showed an average 40% more compliance with those activities than those who did not receive the messages. It could prove a useful tool for clinicians trying to affect behavior change across large patient populations. A low-cost targeted text messaging system sent directly to consumers, reminding them of the power they have to maintain simple lifestyle changes that can improve their chances of preventing or better managing diabetes and other chronic illnesses. Now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare broadcast from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center.